Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Vice President of Marketing and Communications at New England Revolution, Cahill Conlon. Cahill, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. How's it going? All good, all good. Good to get good. another Irish lad on the show. There you go. Had a few on now recently. Lovely. Never a man from life, though. <laughs> Not too many of us <laughs> knocking around. No, no. I mean, <laughs> what, what a way to begin taking... Was back to your youth growing up and out. Have you yeah. an earliest football memory? An earliest football memory. I, have a, I mean, I have a couple. The first was probably, well, because obviously Loud being close to the border, I remember taking my communion money and going across the border to buy a Liverpool jersey. It was my first, uh, one of my first memories. Um, and being a little, that was obviously when the border was still the border in those days. Um, so it was a little daunting as a, as a little fella crossing the border to get me a Liverpool jersey. But um, I still have it. So um yeah did they, still have have did they have sponsors on the front of the shirts back yeah, then? Yeah it was it was yeah it was the Crown Paints jersey back then, yeah. Oh, yeah. So um so I still have it. That's probably the that's probably the earliest memory. I was born into a into a staunch Liverpool family. So um, you know, I hadn't really much of a choice when I came along. Um my one of my brothers is named after Eminent Hughes, for example. So um it was fairly it was fairly set in, in stone when I came along, but that's that's probably one of the first memories of of you know at least engaging properly as a fan with the sport so and then obviously it's quite unique in fact i mean you look at your present role vp of marketing communications obviously a large part of that is fan engagement i mean yep. you've been in a role for 17 years Cahill. what were the set of circumstances that took you to boston in the first place yeah so i used to come i used to come for the summers all the time i went to school in, in liverpool john moore's university so um i used to I used to come over here for the summer with my brother and a couple of buddies and um one of the summers I was over here, I get I um offered a job and I was playing golf. I worked in golf for a little while, so my first real foray in the sports was working in golf. And um, I worked and did golf for four or five years, both sides of the pond. Um, I never wanted to do it. It was just sort of at a convenience. It was a, a vehicle to move to the United States, and it was a good start to my career. But I eventually, sort of burnt out by it and applied for an entry level ticket sales job at the Revolution back in two thousand six, and uh was hired to sell tickets and was pretty good at it. Um, had a bit of a knack for it. And at that time, you know, MLS was really just starting to, to expand and grow. Um, you know, in a brief history of the league, it started in 96 coming off the 94 World cup and started with a big fanfare. Um, but five or six years in was really struggling. You know, the standard on the field wasn't very good. Um, and it wasn't a very profitable business. And, there was really there was questions about would it even survive, you know, in the in the early two thousands and uh, Phil Anschutz of AEG Group and the Lamar Hunt family and the Crafts who own the Revolution, um, those three guys, Lamar and Phil Anschutz and Robert Kraft got in a room and you know decided that they didn't want MLS to fail and they they believed in it long term and they wanted to keep it alive so. The league consolidated back. It was 12 teams originally consolidated back to 10 and they sort of held their breath for a couple of years and, and survived. And then 2005, the, the Sounders came along and sort of changed what a, a soccer club could look like in the United States. And from then on, it's really just been this steady, sustained growth that really in the last five to 10 years has just kicked on to a whole different, a whole different level. So I was sort of a little bit of right place at the right time when I joined the Revs. We were, you know, a skeleton staff. There's about 10 of us, um, full-time people. Everything else was a shared resource with Gillette Stadium and the Craft Sports Group. And now, you know, flash forward to where we are now, we're probably 70 to 80 full-time people and, you know, self-sufficient. And I, I was able to, you know, sort of 
maneuver a career for myself as we expanded and as we developed and we added new roles and new departments, I was able to sort of bounce around and have been in the in the marketing role for, you know, initially as director of marketing and now director of, uh, or now VP of marketing and community engagement, um, probably 10-ish years. So um, it's been a, it's been a journey for sure. And I mean, for those that don't know, I mean, Boston sports, I mean, there's few other cities worldwide, Cahill. Yeah. There's such an expectation and such yep. a unique brand identity or affinity between Bostonians and their sporting teams. Yeah, which is, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? Um, you know, we're 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 the fifth team in a in a four-team market, right? There's a lot of people that still refer to Boston as as big four, right? Um with the Celtics, Bruins, Red Sox, and Patriots, right? And four very successful franchises. Um so you know, soccer is sort of the, the fifth, the fifth team, or the fifth sport, and we're the fifth team. Um, so it is a challenge, but the the other side of it is that you have a market that's packed full of passionate sports fans, right? And they love a winner and um they'll get behind their home team and as long as you give them a reason to. So um it's you know, I think some of my counterparts around around MLS that maybe in smaller markets and maybe maybe the only team or one of two teams in that market, right. That, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure it's, it's a clear advantage for them, right. That because our, our market is so passionate about sports and it's, if you give them a product to engage with um, invariably, they will, right. We, we haven't, we haven't gotten over the hope. We haven't won yet. Right. So that's, that's our biggest challenge. We've, we've lost five MLS cups, right. The championship game. So um, we used to be the Buffalo bills that have lost four of them. Now we're in sort of territory all on our own that we've lost five of them. Um, which is not great. So uh, on the flip side, we've been Eastern Conference champions five times, right? I guess the whole package it. Um, but it's a challenge, right? And I, I think we've seen, you know, a couple of years ago when the Supporter Shield, we won the, the Supporter Shield is given out to the team that finishes the regular season with the most points, right? We're not a, we're not a single table league, right? The team with the most points doesn't be crowned champions. We have playoffs, right? Which is a very American thing, but we, we do have playoffs. So we, uh, we won the Supporter Shield, but, you know, got knocked out in the playoffs. Um, but we saw towards the end of that year it was a record breaking team and we saw, you know, crowds really embrace the team and big numbers showing up at the stadium ready to go on a sort of a championship run with us. And we see that consistently when we perform well. Um but it's a challenge. It's it is a challenge for sure. I mean this marketplace is packed and invariably one or two of those other four teams are good at any given time. And right now the Patriots are a little bit down and the Red Sox are a lot down. But the Bruins and the Celtics are, you know, the best teams in their respective leagues. So it's a, it's a challenge for sure. I mean, you spoke about being in the VP role, your current capacity over perhaps the last decade or so, Carl. I mean, how in fact has that role in remit evolved throughout this last 10 years or so? In coincidence, yeah. the growth of the MLS? Yeah, it's, I mean, look, the, the league itself is is a, a rocket ship at the minute. I mean, the, the, the league, the growth in the league is incredible, right? And, you know, I think the the question, you know, people used to ask the question, will soccer ever make it in, in the United States? And I think if you're still asking that question, you've just missed it. Um, it's here um, and it is thriving. And, you know, we've, we've gone from, when I joined the club, we were averaging about 10,000 people at the games. We're now averaging 21,000 people at the games. Um, it's just the whole business has has changed and everything that's associated with it is is growing and expanding and budgets are expanding and ad spends are expanding and 
you know, the the spotlight that's on the sport has never been more intense in the United States than it is now. And it's only amplified by, you know, a World Cup on the horizon in 26. And, you know, the challenge for all of us in Major League Soccer is to position ourselves to be ready for inevitably what's going to come after 26, right? This this whole league was founded and born out of the 94 World Cup. Right? So that's how impactful it can be on the sport, right? Is a, a professional league was founded off the back of the 94 World Cup. Now we're going to host a tournament in 26 with a league that is, you know, by any metric you want to go by, whether it's attendance or standard or quality, is among the top 10 in the world. And that's just a whole different scenario. And, you know, where the, the sort of talent pool that MLS is fishing in now is is just markedly different from when I started. We were so reliant on the college draft, right? That was where you built your team. And our sort of great teams from the early to mid 2000s that Steve Nichol coached, right? Um, those teams were built through the draft. That's where we got all our talent. Now the draft is, I mean, redundant is too strong a term, but if there's 10 good players that come out of the draft, it's, it's, it's a success. Now it's much more on your academy and are you developing young players yourself? And this Central American, South American pipeline that MLS is mining tremendously efficiently, right? That we've we've now sort of made ourselves a destination where if you're an up and coming player from South or Central America trying to get to you know your dream move to Europe, MLS is a viable spot to do it now. You can you can get noticed here. You can play well here. The competition's really good. You look at someone like Miguel Almiron, right? That Atlanta United signed, and he two years with Atlanta was really good, and has now gone to Newcastle and kicked on to a whole new level, right? That's Tejan Buchanan, who ironically was a draft pick for us, um, is now playing for FC Bruges, right, in the Champions League. So there's, there's, we've really established ourselves as this breeding ground for top young talent, and you know we're in this weird spot where. Yeah, we're having tremendous success and the league is growing, but it's a 28-year-old league, right? So we're still very, very young. And we're still at the point where, you know, it, we recognize that we're not the top league in the world, right? And we can, instead of relying on players at the end of their career to come over here, um, a la Beckham, right? Or Beckham's a little exception. He was a little younger, but... People that have done that, Pirlo's, Lampard's, Gerrard's, right? Um, it's now more about the Almirons and the twenty-something-year-olds that's you know ready to kick on his career. That's that's who we're focused on bringing into MLS. That's probably the so. biggest change. I think I have to echo what you're saying there because it has become quickly a league of choice, and alongside underpinning that, Cottle is it's a league of integrity too because the DP under twenty-two initiative was only brought in due to the study done by Boston Consulting Group. We've indeed yep. seen recently, in the last few weeks, Chicago Fire reaping the benefits from that with the sale of John Duran to Aston Villa. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think the league the league have been very, very smart in how they how they set their business up. You know, um, initially it was probably out of necessity, right, to make sure it survived. And now it's it's become a really, really smart and dynamic business model where, you know, it's it's single entity. So the league owns the clubs and they all they all owners all work together and set policy and set um precedent for the whole league but you know to it's very data driven right they're not making decisions on whims right and you look at you referenced the, the BCG study right that's a massive study of fandom across the country and who's driving engagement with the sport and what are they looking for out of the sport right and 
you know, we talked about this, but we used to chase the soccer snob, we'll call them, right? That which I'm a recovering one, right? We used to chase that guy that that was a huge Premier League fan and would not give MLS the time of day. And we we convinced ourselves that if we got that fan to change his allegiance and become MLS fan, then we would be fine. But when you actually ask those people what they want, we, we can't deliver it. They want the best soccer in the world. And that's not what MLS is. It's just not. Um, and we're aware of that. So you then start to think about, okay, what, what do people want? Who's driving the league and what are they looking for? And this sort of a dynamic attacking style of play is really important to fans in the United States. So the league creates a mechanism that gives clubs the resources in a salary cap league to go and spend on young dynamic attacking players, right? It's really, really clever. It's a really smart way to, to control the level of spending, right? So we don't have what you have, frankly, around the world now, where you have a handful of clubs that are, you know, dictating the entire transfer market and, you know, like a real life example of Chelsea and are buying everybody under the sun, right? And we all know who the clubs are that have all these finances, right? And that would be a disaster for MLS. And we saw it play out with the North American Soccer League, right? We saw the big stars on both coasts and really not much else. And then it collapsed on itself, right? And you can't sustain the talent pool. So in a very strict salary cap league, I think the MLS has done a really smart job of continuing to provide avenues for the teams and the owners to spend more money, while also keeping the parity and making sure that everybody's, you know, competing on the same playing field. Right. And it's, you know, like we're, we're not naive, right. There's still, there's exceptions to every rule, right. If, if Leo Messi decides he wants to come to major league soccer, he's probably going to have a, a bit of a say in where he ends up. Right. So there are exceptions to every rule, but I think as a, you know, as a league, we've been, they've been really smart to, to encourage teams to build their squads in the right way and give the owners the ability to go and mine places like Central America and South America for talent that's abundant, right? And, you know, it, the league is not shy about Mexico and, and Liga MX as being our sort of biggest benchmark, right? And can we surpass Liga MX both on the field and off it, frankly, right? Like that's been that's been the destination for players from this hemisphere, right? Is to get, is to, get to Liga MX and then get your move from there. And, MLS is rapidly becoming that choice that if you can go to League of Max, you can go to MLS. MLS is a very, very attractive proposition now for players to to either bypass Mexico or frankly to move on from Mexico to come here. So that's been a major objective for the league to rival Mexico as as the sort of talent destination here. And they're they're doing a really good job of it. And you speak about at the start there that ever evolving fan dynamic. Indeed, we spoke about it last summer when I visited Foxborough. I mean, you would have laughed, wouldn't you, 10 years ago if people spoke about Austin and Nashville having an MLS spot. But yeah. having been at both places over the summer, Cahill, I mean, it's an experience in of itself. Primetime slot, Saturday, 7 p.m. It's like Friday Night Lights meets the birth of soccer in the U.S. Absolutely yeah. fantastic experience. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. And, you know, I think I'll even, even talk about when, when the commissioner announced that we were going to go to Atlanta, right? And Atlanta is where pro sports go to die, right? That like that's I mean NHL could not be sustained there. The NBA does pretty good there. The Falcons were pretty good, but it's a big college sports town. And people are like, why MLS is going to Atlanta? And you know, I think it was scoffed at a little bit. And that's been an absolutely incredible success, right? They're they're outdrawing the NFL team now. Like people in Atlanta refer to that as Atlanta United Stadium, not the Falcon Stadium. It's it's incredible, but you're seeing this play out across the country, and 
you know, the markets you bring up that are, they wouldn't be on top of people's lists for a professional sports team. But this league is, it's such a progressive league you know, that the young demographic that's driving the league, it's just a unique product. And when you find the right ownership and the right community, um, and like Austin's an, an unbelievable example of that, it's just incredible what can happen. And, you know, I think there's an interest in sort of dichotomy between the original 10 MLS clubs, right? Ourselves among them, obviously. And some of the challenges we've had as original teams in trying to maintain and grow your fan base, right? Because if you lived in Boston in 1996 and went to an MLS game, you, you're carrying some baggage, right? Because it wasn't very good. It was it was a weird take on the sport. It went, the clocks counted the wrong way and there was crazy shootouts at the end of the games and it was very Americanized version of the sport. And I think if you're a, a soccer first fan that came to that, you didn't like it. And we have to sort of overcome that and we have to wade through all that and get you to come back. Whereas if you live in Austin or St. Louis, join an MLS now, right? That's the next city to come in. You've, you don't have that baggage. You, you've, you don't have a poor version of MLS to wade through. You're joining a, a dynamic league that's on the rise with really good talent in it. And it's a really good business property. And that's just a whole different, it's a whole different animal. And you're seeing this sort of, unprecedented success every time a new stadium opens or a new club comes in you know we've gone from again 10 teams when i joined in 2006 to now 28 i mean it's incredible the, the growth and it's not just growth for growth's sake it's very strategic and it's very it's very well thought out and very well planned and it just these stories success stories are all over the country it's awesome exactly and i mean if we're going to zoom back in on your own role Carl. yeah i mean as you know on Sports, pro sports, I mean, you have to ensemble some characteristics, at least of being a high performance, to last as long as you have in your own position. And that's no more so prevalent than where you are in terms of the MLS, where it's a sprint to stay on the treadmill. But with your job, you know, being intertwined with marketing, uh, brand engagement, community engagement, in fact, I mean, how do you keep those high performance standards whilst also at the same time embracing creativity and innovation at the forefront? Yeah, look, I think... I think one of the advantages we have of of being a, a fairly young league is that we we still have we can take a lot of risks, right? And we can take a lot of chances, um, both in sort of marketing tactics or um, campaigns or whatever it is we're doing. We can be a little aggressive. We can take a little more of an aggressive stance on things. Um, we're very data driven, right? We we don't really we try not to just speculate. Um, yeah, you, there is a certain amount of money you have to spend and resources on brand awareness, right? We talk about being the fifth team in this marketplace and we do still have to do a lot of those sort of traditional out-of-home things to to build your brand. But, um, you know, we we really do let the data dictate a lot of what we do. And, you know, when we when we know now what fans are looking for from us and can we be as very targeted and very deliberate in how we, we deliver that to them, um, you know, we rebranded the club a year and a half ago, which, you know, was a massive undertaking, probably a four-year project start to finish. And, you know, I think that's one where we did not, we did, we, we felt strongly that we needed to rebrand and reimagine the identity of the club, but we did not make any decisions on what that would look like until we talked to fans. Right. And you, you know, I would have been very much in the camp of we should change the name, right. Cause it's a very old Americanized sort of sports name. Right. And, um, I could not have been more wrong when you ask the fans what 
what would it look like? The overwhelmingly most important thing to them was not to change the name. The name means something to people here. It harkens back to 1776 and the birth of the country. And that's why the team in New England was called the revolution. That's that's what it means. And you you quickly identify that that's what's important to fans and you can start to build your platform from there and, and take it where it ends up. And look, it, it's, you know, I think as some of our counterparts around the league learn the hard way, right? Rebranding is very hard and it's very emotional. And, you know, if you don't get it right, it can be a disaster, right? Chicago had to rebrand twice in two years and Columbus had a bit of a disaster with their rebrand. And, you know, we, we thankfully, for like, overwhelmingly was positive feedback from everybody, universe fans and industry alike. Um, and it was, I, you know, I think it's purely because we engage the fans right from the get-go and ask them what was important to them. So, you know, when you, it's not rocket science, when you, when you uncover what the fans want, it's really just about delivering it to them on their terms, right? That's the other thing that's changed now. It's, people consume you know how you consume your news or your entertainment is so individual and so personal now that's we have to the pressures on us to talk to you on your terms where you're consuming when you're consuming we need to find you not the other way around right it used to be just throw up a big billboard and fans will find you and you know we it's just totally flipped on its head now you know and we're about to you know, Apple TV has taken over the entire broadcast platform for MLS, which is incredible, right? It's another huge opportunity for engagement, not just locally, but globally for the sport, right? Like any any fan or any person now who subscribes to MLS Season Pass on Apple TV Plus can watch every single game anywhere in the world. I mean, that's incredible. It's, a, it's unheard of in sports media rights, right? And that's another example of the league sort of being on the front edge and being cutting edge and being confident enough to be able to do a deal like this. And yes, you're going to have detractors, of course, right? It's You'll have people that will not like that it's a paid, a paid service, right? And they won't, they'll push back a little on that. But when you compare it to the opportunity that presents itself to be partnered with someone like Apple um, for MLS, it's just an incredible opportunity that presents itself. So it's uh, it's exciting. It's really exciting. Certainly are some exciting times. I mean, I'm just writing down here some of the important milestones along the way of the Apple TV deal. Cup America recently just announced yep. that their 24 um, series will be held, in fact, in the United States, the World Cup yep. 26. I mean, how in alignment with that, with those key milestones, Cahill, do you envisage the typical football consumer in the States to change? Yeah, I think... You know, I think this this next six months or so will be will be very telling in 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 what that's going to look like, right? We've we're going from sort of twenty eight markets that had their own local broadcast deals and supplemented by national broadcast, you know, once or twice a week to now we're going to consistent programming windows, right? The, the games are going to be on like Revolution games are going to either be at seven thirty on a Wednesday or seven thirty on a Saturday every week. That's schedule appointment viewing now right people can find us um that's going to be consistent across the board and you multiply that by 28 29 markets um you give anyone the ability across the world to watch these games um again on their own terms right there's billions of apple devices in the world right um and you don't even need an apple device that's the other thing it's just you can go to apple tv without needing an apple device so it's literally every device every match every stream is available now and that's 
that's again, it's just sort of I want to keep using the word when Harold are unprecedented, but it really is. I mean, it's just going to change the whole dynamic of how people can consume our sport. And, you know, I think it's obviously the streaming revolution is, you know, it's not new and it's been going on for a while. I think this is just the next phase of that to take the entire league platform and hand it over to someone like Apple and the, you know, the ingenuity they have and um, some of the ways they've already sort of revolutionized content and to have now an entire sports platform at their, uh, at their control is, is really exciting. It's really incredible. They're hiring some dynamic people on the broadcast side. Like they're, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. And, you know, obviously locally, right. The pressure is on us. We have to, we have to make sure that everybody understands what it is and how to get it and why they should get it. And, you know, there's content players there and are we putting enough engaging content onto the platform to, you know, drive revs fans in there. But um, I think just you know, as a league and we talk amongst ourselves as the clubs and it's just really amazing to think that we're on the sort of verge of this again, new milestone that we'll all look back on in a decade and go, Wow, like that that was really unbelievable what happened there. And you're you're right to talk about this sort of confluence of major things happening, right? And you know, we're MLS and League MX are partnering this year in a, a new competition called Leagues Cup, right? It's a whole new tournament. Every club from Mexico and every MLS club are gonna be engaged in a summer sort of World Cup style tournament, right? Group stages and knockouts. Um, we're gonna stop the MLS season for about a month and bang that tournament out. And it's again, unheard of that a domestic league would stop to play another domestic league in a mid-season tournament. I mean, like, I imagine the Premier League and, and League One stopping, right, in the middle of the season to play this knockout tournament between them. It just, it just wouldn't happen, right? But that's another example of MLS and League MX sort of looking at the opportunity that's in front of us with this you know, giant landmass and the number of people that are here that are already engaging with a sport and what else can we give them to just ramp it all up and keep them with us and, and keep delivering, you know, high quality engaged football, soccer. And <laughs> important <laughs> distinction as well, which I've had to get used to here in the last <laughs> yeah. months, Carl, yeah. myself. But uh, I mean, to play a devil's advocate, yeah. obviously we've spoken about on the show about the growth of the MLS, which has been unprecedented more so than most in recent years. To play devil's advocate, many people, many outsiders, Colin, would remark upon the MLS as a single entity, saying inherently that puts a ceiling on growth. I mean, do we envisage the change, do we envisage due to the change in nature of the game and how fans appreciate football now in the US, do we see a change in MLS rules? Do we see a change to that single entity ever occurring in the coming years? I don't, I, I would be surprised if the single entity nature changed. Um, I'd be surprised at that. And we've, you know, I think we've, you know, people from other leagues around the world have, have sort of studied the MLS model and actually really like how it operates. Um, now, the the other side of it is the, is the promotion relegation piece, right? And we get, we get knocked on that by, you know, again, the soccer snobs and the purists, right? And that's not to say they're wrong. Um, I, I don't mean to say that at all, right? It's, it's a, you know, this sort of closed system, right? That was heavily criticized when, uh, you know, the European Super League conversations were, were, were kicked around, right? Um, so we're not, we're not sort of naive to that. Um, and when you think about the overall global soccer 
landscape in the United States, right? It goes beyond MLS, right? USL is there and it's a, it's a thriving product and you have, you know, promotion relegation opportunities. But um, I think when MLS, and again, this is just me speculating, right? It's no insider information or anything on it. I think when, when you look at the drop-off that exists between MLS and its facilities and its fan bases to some of the USL markets, I just, in my opinion, it's too, it is too stark a drop off now to to have viable promotion and relegation. Um, I don't see that as a as something that's going to happen anytime soon. Now, if MLS continues to expand, could you have a forty team major league soccer that has promotion and relegation among two divisions? Maybe I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I think when you sort of look at where it is now um, and the growth it's experiencing, and is it perfect? No. Um, you know, I think you you look at the single table piece again and your playoffs, right? That we set a record for points, 73 points in the season and did not win the league, right? And that's just that's just the way it is. That's the system we play in. We have playoffs and we don't have promotion and relegation. That's where we are. Um so I, I do think they're they're valid concerns. Um and I think that I'm not sure you'll get too many people that will tell you everything's perfect and this is the way everything should operate but overall i think the single entity system is really good at developing a league with parity and a league where every year there are legitimately a, a dozen teams that have a legitimate chance to compete and win um and it's even more than that and you just don't have that in any of the leagues around the world right like arsenal might win the premier league this year and if they don't, it'll be Man City again. And next year, it'll be Man City again. And maybe Newcastle will push them close, and maybe a couple of other teams will be in there. But you can probably tell at the start of the season who's going to be competing to win. It's the same in, I mean, Germany, same. right? France, the same. So I, I think when you compare the sort of parity that MLS has, I, I, I think you're hard pushed to say that the, the single ownership model is better so you know i if financial for a player everything else that goes along with it and how you how you try to force parity i i think everyone else is struggling with it whereas mls has developed a very smart way to ensure that everybody is competing on the same playing field yes you have dps right and there's you can go and sign three big name players and that's where sort of ownership clout can right you can flex your muscles as an owner right you can go and get the spend absorbent amounts of money on three players if you want, but it's only three players and everybody has that opportunity and the rest of your squad, you have to manage very carefully and you have to be ready to compete. And that's, that's just, to me, it's hard to criticize that when you look at the sort of monopolies that have emerged on the rest of the world. I think it's a credit to Cahill in the last 30 or so minutes. I don't think there's been many who've come on the show that have been able to decipher Devon can put <laughs> And put into uh, a concise manner all the rules and regulations of the MLS. <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's hard, and that's one of the things we battle with. Is right every time we announce a new allocation mechanism or all these different terms with that affect the salary cap, it, it's really hard to explain to people, and you do risk sort of drowning people in the minutia, right? Um, but I think if you just focus on the basic principles that everybody's playing with the same resources. Everybody has three opportunities to go and sign big name players or designated players. And beyond that, 
everyone's on the same playing field. And that's just really compelling story when, especially set against the backdrop of what you're looking at across the world is more sort of state owned teams take control or, you know, Chelsea with their you know, hedge fund billionaire buys the club and can do whatever they want. Right. That's, that's not, that's not an issue here. We have very wealthy people that own teams here that are probably a little frustrated by the constraints that are on them. Right. They would love to be able to go and buy six, seven, eight, nine big name players, but it would not be beneficial for the long-term growth of the league. And you know, this gets back to the data question too, right? And what we ask people, what they're looking for. It wasn't big name European players. It was exciting, dynamic, young attacking players. You know, there's much more emphasis put on what's the style of play look like? And is it dynamic and young and aggressive and attacking versus, oh, we should have the Beckhams and the Zlatans and the Gerrards and the Lampards and the Pirlos, right? And, that's not the damn player though. It's like David Beckham, his impact in this league is incredible, was incredible when he came here. Um, so it's not to say that's wrong, but it's not what people really want. They want they want clubs to be built differently. And that's what MLS is focused on. And more and more money is pumped into academies and developing your own players. And that's that's where the emphasis is. That and signing when you do invest, make sure it's you know where you can. It's a young, dynamic player with upside. That's that's what we're focused on as a league. And, you know, we'll see what the next iteration is, right? It's it's a constantly evolution. Again, we're only 29 years old, right? So it's it's um it's constantly evolving, but it's uh who knows where it'll be 10 years from now. I, I don't I don't know. You know, I think the future is very, very bright, and we'll see. You know, I fully expect in 26 a US national team to be a really strong competitor in that tournament. You know, I don't think I'm not going to win it by any means, but I don't, I think it's going to move beyond the expectations to get out of a group and make some noise. I think the expectation is to go and, and compete. And if you set that against, you set MLS against that backdrop, it just could be huge post 26. So that's what we're getting ready for. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to establish ourselves for and see where it takes us. Uh, Cahill, I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation, really value it as well too. I mean, you've had a, unbelievable kind of seat at the forefront of seeing the ingenuity and the growth of the MLS over these past few years or so. I mean, to wrap it up, yeah. I mean, for anyone who's that slightly bit inspired, listening to your own pathway, listening to your own journey, what advice would you have for them as to begin to tread a similar path? Yeah, look, I think the biggest thing, and you know, I, I try to tell people is right. Like it's, you know, I was fortunate enough that, you know, to be able to sort of revert, reverse path and chase a, a dream and working for a soccer club right and i didn't i didn't envision that it would be in boston i envision it would be in mls but that's that's what it was and you know i think when i go back to it i, I didn't want to work in sales that wasn't my i didn't want to do that but that was a, a vehicle to get inside the door and then when you get inside it's up to you right you know and sales jobs are, are very fairly available in professional sports right um it's hard to sell tickets and it, it, there's a lot of turnovers. So those jobs are always available. Take that, take that job, get in the door. That is the most important thing. Get inside. Once you're inside, then you can start to navigate and make the relationships and, you know, be your own best sort of brand advocate. Right. Um, but you got to get in the door. That's the hardest part. And once you do, it's really, it's really up to you. Um, it's not glamorous. You know, I think people from the outside look at sports and, like, don't get me wrong, right? I, I work at Gillette Stadium. It's it's cool, right? It is. And I get to go out to training and watch training, and that's cool. So I'm not it, it but it's it's hard work and it's 
it's tough hours and it's weekends and it's summers and it's it's hard, but it's it's extremely rewarding if you're willing to put the work in. But the hardest part is to get in the door. Like is and don't be afraid to take a job that maybe is not what you wanted it to be. If you want to work in marketing, it doesn't mean you have to start with a marketing job, right? Get in the door and then start to navigate and go from there. That's probably the most you know, important important lesson I learned, right? That was to get in and see the opportunities and blaze your own trail, right? And when we hire people here, your resume is important. Your resume gets you the interview, but that's not what gets you the job. What gets you the job is, is how you talk to people and engage people and how you learn and what you how you pitch yourself, right? You know, what's your own elevator pitch for your own brand, right? To have that ready to go. Someone wants to know who you are, be ready in 30 seconds to tell them exactly who you are and what you can bring. So. Fantastic. Cahill, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nice catching up with you.